Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is an alcoholic recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, We'll be discussing how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. Uh, So I'd like to welcome Ingrid to the show. Hi, Ingrid. Hi, Bill. Ingrid, on the show, we like to sort of start off talking about growing up and the things that influenced you. So what was your early life like? Yes, I grew up in um, an alcoholic family. My father was a World War, well, actually, both parents were World War II survivors they weren't given any sort of um, help for what they saw. So my father drank heavily and um, they're European and my childhood was quite traumatic. I was the youngest of three and my brother and sister were eight and six years older than me. So and that they were a result of my mum's first marriage and her husband was killed in a car accident and she met my dad and then married and had me. But Certainly with growing up in an alcoholic family was difficult because my father would rage before he would drink. And then on weekends, my mother would want to please him. So she would drink as well. And um, she was a blackout drunk. And it was very confusing. I was always, you know, expected as a young child to look after them. You know, I'd come home after playing with my friends and they'd be drunk. You know, I'd be vomit out in the backyard and I'd be putting them to bed and looking out the window, thinking someone was going to break in and kill us. And look, it was very traumatic, you know, and I always wanted to speak to my dad. I always wanted to, you know, have chats with him and I couldn't get near him because he raged so much. So once he had his first drink, then I could sit down and talk to him. So it created in me um, this, this need, this constant need to please him. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was quite difficult and it got worse. And I ended up, I found out, well, I used to eat as a child so much until I vomited. And then when I went into uh, a clinic, they told me you were bulimic and I was horrified, didn't know that. So that was me as a small child eating until I was sick and uh, thinking that was the norm. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's how it was. That's what, what happened anyway at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so did you get on with your sisters? My sister and brother. Oh, sister and brother, yeah my half-sister and brother. So my sister was the eldest and my brother. Um, I constantly chased after them, you know, because they were um, out doing their own thing, being so much older. The house wasn't very nice to be in. But I always felt like, you know, I wanted their attention too. So yes and no, I guess, to that answer. Yeah, okay. So was school a respite from home? Interesting question. Again, I went to a Catholic school and had nuns as a, in the primary school days. That was pretty tough, pretty tough as well, because I found out now that I'm dyslexic. So no. as a child, I was dyslexic. So they would, um, you know, if I couldn't understand something, they'd just belt me and put me outside. So, you know, there wasn't a respite at school. I mean, the nuns were quite cruel and... Um, you know, I can still remember as a, a young girl, what, about 12 years old, I went to I went to a high school then and I was in grade six and I remember going to the train station and thinking I could easily throw myself off the platform, you know, and I mean, that's just not normal for a 12-year-old. So school was very, very difficult and I was very big. I was a very big child, you know. By the time I used, I, I got to teenage years, I was already up there at about 100 kilos. So I, you know, stacked on a lot of weight and dyslexic, which wasn't diagnosed. So, yeah, yeah, pretty hard. It does sound difficult, yes. So did you have any good friendships? 
I certainly did. And I still see a couple of those people now. And I had some close friendships. And also going back to primary school, we were from Europe. So I spoke a foreign language, which wasn't popular in the 60s as well. And so, you know, I had an Italian girlfriend. So we sort of stuck together, both of us not speaking English. But yes, I did. I had, I've got some very close friendships from perhaps two, two close friendships from those days. Yeah, I was lucky there, lucky there that I was able to have a close friend for sure. So as, as you um, got older and went to high school, did things change sort of moving out of primary? No, I think I gave up, Bill. I think I gave up on school because I had one teacher in, and it was in high school, she was in grade six, and she was a lay teacher and she actually believed in me and, you know, I got the, the most improved award for the year and it was because she believed in me and she taught me differently and I excelled that year. But that was it. Then I had nuns and I gave up. and I, So I went under the radar, really, with school and I was just doing my own thing. I didn't really understand anything because of the dyslexia. I didn't, couldn't read. You know, I put words all different ways. And what I'm, taught, what I'm told today is that they didn't know how to teach me. I was a lateral thinker. So I went under the radar and, um, yeah, pretty awful, really. So, and I finished in Form 3. I finished school. I just left and in the days, you know, there was plenty of work. So I started work and I met my husband-to-be at a very young age, at 15. Okay. Well, talking about that, did, relationships are often difficult for children who come out of dysfunctional homes. So did you find, you know, forming a, a relationship with other people difficult or easy? Well, for me, well, I was a child, really. I was not 15, nearly 16. What I did was I attracted another alcoholic because that was what was familiar. So my husband was a heavy drinker. Well, he wasn't my husband at the time. And we dated for eight years before we got married. But it was difficult because it really was, well, you can't really have a, a real relationship when someone's, you know, drinking all the time. And he would go off and drink on the weekends and worked hard and yeah there wasn't when I look back now it wasn't it just wasn't real and it wasn't stable he come from high dysfunction in his own family but it was normal for me it was absolutely normal that he drank so that's the scary part because that's what was modeled to me as a child yeah so what about work then did you did you fit in easily at work I did I had I had great work yeah one job 17 years and formed great friendships which I've still got today and I wasn't I wasn't one to you know go to one job and move to the next no I was quite loyal and they were quite good jobs I was lucky again but again when I look back you know any trauma I mean I avoided confrontation avoided it all at all cost and you know, if anyone was angry at me or they were screaming at me or anything like that, I would control them. I would control that moment by reducing myself to tears. So that was actually controlling the other person because I'd be in tears and they wouldn't know where to go. So, you know, I didn't have a very functional way of showing anger. It was always rage. And so for me to control the situation, I would cry. But I was this lost child in an adult body, body anyway. You know, I had no um, emotional maturity on board. So navigating my way around work was quite difficult too because, of, of course, you're, you're uh, amongst a lot of people where there's co conflict. Yeah, look, it, was, it, was, it had its moments, but I did, again, being a people pleaser, people love that, and I formed some great friendships. So, <laughs> Yes. So when did you start drinking I used to just go out with my husband and have the occasional drink. I didn't like drinking much because obviously of what I was, what was going on at home. But then my husband got, um, well, this is what I was about 47. We had three children and he came home this day and said, you know, um, I've got bad news. I've got cancer and I've got something else to tell you. And uh, we owned our house and we had an investment property and I thought we were doing well, but we weren't. And so he'd been gambling and he'd lost, oh, he told me about 300,000. We had a huge debt. And then that was the 40s, in my 40s when I started drinking. And 
he lasted a year. He had esophageal cancer and he died. And then my drinking really accelerated. So from the late 40s, I mean, I was, I was an on and off drinker, I would say, most of my life. I had been drunk as a young person as well. But then from the late, say, 47 or maybe even 46 and then to my 50s and then I went into a clinic in Sydney and I, I didn't, had no idea I was alcoholic and she pinpointed it. So I went in for all the other stuff that was going on with, I met a man who was unavailable, just like my father. Those sort of things that made me have to really face myself because uh, what I was doing was actually trying to, to restore what, what went on with my father and I was attracting these unavailable men. So I went to Sydney to actually recover from that and that's when she said to me, how long have you been an alcoholic, which horrified me. And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. And she pinpointed it. She did. And, you know, I mean, if I was truly honest with myself, I mean, yeah, I was. I drank. I can drink, you know, two, three bottles and, and not appear drunk. But, you know, that's just not, not social drinking. And I always had the, you know, I used to say I was just a social drinker. So certainly for about 10 years, I would say I was heavy, heavy drinking. So that's a long time between getting married and what you must have been around 23 and 47 so there's a long time and drinking didn't cause any problems for you in that time not for me because I was like I'd go out with friends occasionally and I'd drink and get drunk probably like similar to my mum like a bit of a binge drinker that wasn't the problem the problem was that I was living with an alcoholic and I had other addictions at play so what I know for myself is that I switched addictions. I would switch addictions and it was up to me to find out what, what, was, it, what was I doing now. Like I'd overeat till I was sick or buy clothes or spend or love addiction. Love addiction was a big one for me as well. So I would just switch addictions and then I got on to, you know, I would eat chocolate until I was sick and then the alcohol. So it was all part of the same problem, really. It was just, it was just switching and yeah, facing, facing it all, really. It was hard work. Yeah. It was hard work. Most addictions are, are about not wanting to think about something. And so you're, you're doing it to distract yourself and give yourself some quiet time. Absolutely. So Absolutely. did you have a preference for what you used to do that? Or, or was it sort of cyclic? Well, uh, red wine. I drank a lot of red wine and that just used to numb me out. So, yeah, I did that. I guess love addiction and I, that was pretty bad. Certainly when I met this unavailable man that ended up being married, you know, I could have lost my life with that because that stinking thinking and that constant going over everything and he said this and I said that. It's just, it was I was crazy, absolutely crazy. So love addiction was a real big one for me and that really stemmed from my codependency and my family of origin and, and as I said, that unavailable father, father figure in my life. So constant, constantly attracting men that really were not available. Yeah. Is what I know about myself. Okay. So... I think you said you had children. Yes, three children. And the oldest one, unfortunately, passed away at 34 in 2016. Through this addiction, she was in prescription, using prescription drugs and doctor shopping. It was tragic. And, yeah, so, again, what I've learned is that this is the poisonous chalice and this gets passed down generation to generation. I've got two other children that have actually seen my recovery and now both. And I never actually said to them, you know, you can't drink or you can't do this drugs or anything. I just said, this is what's gone on in my family and what I know is that it gets passed down and this is why you lost your sister and, and they've just stopped. And I'm just, I'm just blessed every day. They're just, they're terrific. You know, they're still working through their stuff as well. It's been a real shock for the family. And I lost my husband in 2005. 
to this disease, esophageal cancer he had. But um, yeah, it was that was traumatic. And the oldest one really never got over losing her dad. And she got into a relationship which was toxic and using drugs and a toxic partner. And it was just a spiral. And it was hideous. And I got myself into Al-Anon because I knew that I was people-pleasing, saving, paying her, you know, car fees and giving her money constantly when she wanted it. And I knew that, you know, I'll go down with her. So I got myself into Al-Anon and um, that's been a godsend as well because I really needed to, to heal the past, to heal the family of origin stuff. And I knew that if I work on myself, you know, that there'll be a ripple effect amongst the family and that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. So with, with your daughter, did she try to get help or not? Yeah, I, I put her in my the recovery I went to in Sydney. I paid for that. She was great. She was really great. But what they did say to her was no relationship for 12 months. But what did she do? Straight away, she had to have a relationship. She could not be without a man. And that was her demise, that next, because, I mean, her marriage ended in, Queen, she was in Queensland and her marriage ended and she came, I brought her back here and things were pretty bad and the counsellor said, look, she'll die there, you'll have to. And I did, of course, and I rescued her and I said no relationship and she was getting her life back on track, job and all of that. And, um, yeah, met this man that was had a lot of drugs and I knew it wasn't going to be easy, um, but you're never prepared. You're never prepared for that. I mean, I was at work and the police came to, to my work and it was just the worst day of my life. Yeah, pre prescription drugs. I don't know what else. I, um, I just know that, you know, she, her hands used to shake and it was just, it was terrible. Yeah, so I still have my hard days with that. Mm. I really do. Okay. Well, so we might take a short break there. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from eleven AM on Community Radio 3CR. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Ingrid, and we're talking about recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous as well as some other, some other addictions as well. So, Ingrid, you were married when you were about 23. You had a few kids. So was life sort of normal? I mean, so you were married to a drinker but, yeah. and a gambler, but was life ever normal for you or was it always something about your compulsive behaviours that drove your life? Yes, definitely. Look, it wasn't normal because... I mean, once I had my children, my focus was on my children and my husband just did his own thing and was drinking and we'd come together and there'd be times that we'd fight and 
yeah, look, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a good union, really, I wouldn't say. But I didn't know any better. And I guess what I did was, you know, I, I got my, you know, I guess looking back now, it's like you, you've got your children and you make them like your surrogate spouse and you make them your confidant. And I didn't have the tools to know that that was dysfunctional at the time. So what I see now was grooming new addicts to the world, really. And that's exactly what happened. So, no, in that time that I was married, um, what, 23 years, I think it was, longer. I'm trying to think now how long we were married. It was a ships passing in the night, him drinking, not me, me not wanting to be around him and putting the focus all on my children. So it wasn't healthy. Yeah. And it ended badly, really. Yeah. So your kids... How badly were they affected by your husband's drinking? All three. All three of them were affected. My daughter in the middle was quite big, huge, actually, because, I mean, again, the secret of the family, with the we, I'm a celiac. I didn't know, and that's what was creating a lot of the obesity within me, and she was huge. Once I found out I was celiac, we tested the kids, and they were all celiac. So she was huge, and then once she became old enough she was out on the scene and taking drugs and you know felt miserable was terrible and then my son did the same so couldn't be any different it just couldn't be any different I see now because the recovery wasn't there and it wasn't and it's passed down generation to generation and it did it affected all three children and my eldest one who who died she was the most problematic we were having issues. We were at counselling. She would cut herself. She would be anorexic. I thought I was going to lose her. I couldn't get close to fit her. And what I've learned now, these are all attention-seeking things. So dramatic and a massive impact on my family. And the counsellors that we went to, I can remember as a family sitting there because we were at counselling for her, and they just blamed us. They blamed the family without actually explaining, you know, that why. So it wasn't until I went into recovery that I understand, you know, I, I understand what happened and why it happened. And it's no one's fault. It's actually no one's fault. It's you do the best you can with what you have and no different to my parents. They did the best they can with what they had. And it caused a lot of problems. I mean, within, my, within their own children. I mean, my brother's an alcoholic, still alive. My sister passed away at 40, 43 and married a violent husband who beat her and she died of cancer at 43. So, you know, I understand what untreated addictions do and I understand how it affects the whole family. So it affected my children no differently. Yeah. Yeah, they often call it the family disease of alcoholism because of that you're basically incubating people who will have relationship and, I guess, identity problems. Absolutely. Did it help you to sort of understand the disease nature of, of alcoholism and, and things like that, the fact that it's, it's, not, it's not a moral issue, it's a physical issue? Did that help you to sort of forgive yourself Absolutely. Yeah, it helped me a lot. And it helped me feel, it helped me heal my relationship with my father. Because my poor father died an alcoholic. You know, at 79, he had an enlarged heart. And, you know, that last year of his life was just the worst because he drank so much that he had to measure like every half hour, like 10 mils of water. That's all his body could take. And, you know, I had to, to recover that relation, even though he'd passed away. I had to work and do some work in the recovery, recovery clinic in Sydney. And actually, I remember putting him in a chair and having to talk to him and saying, when you did this to me, this is how I felt. And, you know, I understand. And I had to, you know, go back and look at dad as a little boy and what he went through. And, yeah, it's, it's not about blame and it's not about, you know, he did this. He didn't wake up one day and say, well, my ambition in life is to be an alcoholic, you know. And I didn't either. I didn't either. So 
what you don't heal, you pass on. And I know that. Yeah. So finding out, you know, your husband was going to die and was going to leave you with a very large debt, how did that make you feel? must have been shocking. Oh, terrible, Bill, terrible. I was, like, in shock. You know, I wasn't, I was out of my mind again. I had a son still at school and I should have got a solicitor and got advice and I didn't. I took on his debt and he was going to die anyway and he wanted me to take it on and he let me take it on and I did it. So again, this constant caretaking, you know, this people pleasing, you know, it was instilled in me as a little child. It's just constant at my own detriment. And I have to catch myself now, even today, because I tend to want to do that. It's just something that was instilled in me and I had no idea. And now looking back, you know, I see what the impact of that has done to my life. And, you know, I, I struggle today and I didn't, I don't have, I didn't have to, but I do, I struggle today because I carry a gambling debt that wasn't mine. Yeah. Mm. So you mentioned that that's when you started drinking as well. So how, how did that drinking sort of progress? What, what did it start like and where did it go? Oh, it started with a couple of glasses of wine, red wine, and I thought, oh, this is a nice feeling. I just liked the way I felt. I just, you know, I'd come home from work, my husband would pour the wine, and, and I remember saying to him, you know, um, I shouldn't be doing this. And he goes, well, what else have you got? So... I actually remember thinking how, how it just calmed all my nervous system, you know, and I'd think that I could go to bed and sleep, but I couldn't. It always woke me. I never had a decent night's sleep when I had alcohol. And it progressed by, I mean, one night I remember this was when he passed away. I drank three bottles, I drank three bottles. And I remember lying in bed thinking, and I heard this voice saying, what are you doing? Yep. It was pretty bad and, you know, I'm sure driving to work the next day I would have been over 0.05 for sure, no doubt in my mind. And I'm sure people would have smelted in my skin. So it just progressed and it's a progressive, it's like a scorpion. You know, you can think you're just having this social drink and you're just being, but it's like this, it just gets you, you know, like I couldn't wait to get home and start drinking properly if I was out at a dinner thinking these people are having one glass of wine, how boring. Get home, get home and get home and crack a bottle and sit on my decking and down and go. So it progressed, you know, it really did. I mean, I'd be bringing boxes of wine home from Dan Murphy. Boxes a week. Yeah, it sounds funny, but, uh, you know, it's a very common thing for alcoholics to say, talking about, you know, these people who just had one glass of wine. <laughs> Used to frustrate me, Bill. I'd be sitting there thinking, "You're crazy, you lot." You're wasting your time. <laughs> wasting my time. Let me go home. So really, the isolation become bigger because I couldn't drive. You see, you know, my son would ring me, "Oh, Mum, can you pick me up?" Oh no, I've had a drink, a drink, I'd say. Yeah. You know, I couldn't drive, so my life became smaller and smaller. You know, because I just wanted to be home, and then I'd be at work thinking, "Oh, when I cook dinner, I'm gonna." pour the wine and I'm going to cook dinner. I mean, yeah, it just progressed and it really is a progressive disease. And I didn't wake up one day saying, like my dad, I'm going to be an Elkie. I did not. It just got me and it really got me good. So, you know, when I was coming off alcohol, I can remember accessing my anger as well. That was a huge thing for me, huge. And, you know, the clinic in Sydney, they said, Anger is a boundary. You know, you were raised to never show anger, which is very dangerous, very dangerous. So she said, we have to access your anger. Well, she certainly let that out because today I find myself with more of a voice and I find myself putting up boundaries with appropriate anger. And that's because of the, the work I've done and, you know, the ongoing support I get from AA as well. So, Yeah been an amazing journey and it continues yeah uh so do you want to go back to how you got to the clinic to find out you're an alcoholic what what was the path to get there i was a love addict and i was caught up in this avoidant avoidant love addiction relationship 
that I couldn't break the cycle. It was very toxic and I knew I needed help. I knew there was something wrong and that my drinking had got worse with that. But, of course, I was hiding that. So lots of secrets, yeah? Yeah. And so I got to Sydney. <laughs> I got to Sydney. I was reading a lot of Pia Melody's work and uh, I thought, gee, I'd love to do that sort of recovery of that work. And I was at a, I don't know where I was, I was at Chadston looking for more recovery books and this book fell on my head and it was called Set Yourself Free by Shirley Smith. And I looked it up and the clinic was in Sydney. So I got on the phone and thought, wow, I've got to, I've got to get there. And so I did. And uh, it, it was work. She was doing work by Pia Melody's, that sort of program. And that really appealed to me. Yeah, I did um, a 12-day program and it was outpatients. So I did 12 days and then I did another 12 days. So it was pretty full on. And um, it was a lot of inner child work and recovery. Yeah. So did they link you up with AA? They did. That's when she actually confronted me and said, how long have you been an alcoholic? And I was horrified. I said, I'm not here for that. I don't drink. I'm not a, I mean, I say, I said, I'm only social drinking. And she sort of tilted her head and I was so angry. I was so angry. And she said, why are you so angry? <laughs> so it was a matter of confronting my drinking. Oh, she, she actually suggested I go to AAD and I did. I went to my first one in Sydney. So, and it was great. And I felt a real connection. I felt like I found my group. I felt like I found my voice and I felt like I was being heard for the first time. It was amazing, really. So do you remember the feeling? A lot of people talk about the ability to identify with other people and, and sort of get that reinforcing that you're, you're normal, you know, you just have a problem instead of you're abnormal. Mm -hmm. So what, what was your experience with, you know, going to your first AA meeting as far as identifying? Well, I guess what I was hearing was my story. I was actually hearing my story with the shares and couldn't believe it. I just felt, I felt like I could, for the first time in my life, I could actually relax. That I was with people that, that understood, that had been, that had walked that path. And I just felt, I felt like there was just this higher power at work amongst us. It was quite a revelation really and I came out of there floating and I realized that a lot of my stuff is just stuff that I hadn't I hadn't healed from way way back you know in my childhood and that this was just another part of all of that all of the same stuff fabulous it was just great and it's been ongoing and that and what I can say is that AA has just opened doors for me and opened a life that I, even though I may not have a lot of money, but I've got more than that. I've got my serenity and I've got my peace and I'm not constantly looking, you know, to, to numb myself. I, I, was, I was sober when I lost my daughter and that was like scary because I was scared I was going to pick up, but I didn't and I just kept close to the program. So, yeah, and that I had people calling me constantly. So I wasn't alone. I never felt alone. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you, you found out subsequently that you had celiacs, which was a, related to your weight. So how did you, how did they find out that? Well, within recovery, there was so much, so much, Bill. I mean, I kept thinking, I don't feel like a, so even with, you know, with a celiac, I, I kept thinking, why am I always so big? You know, it's not normal to lose, starve yourself, lose the weight and then put it back on. So I started to look into integrated. My thyroid died. I thought, why did that go? I started asking why, you know. So I go to a normal practice of, you know, endocrinologist. And he said, look, one day that's just your lot. You know, you're going to always be tired and one day I'll have to take your thyroid out because it's going to die completely. Well, that's not true. In his medicine, it was true. But for me... It was because I, nobody discovered I was celiac. Once I went to an integrated doctor and they ran all these tests and she asked me, she said, do you think you could be celiac? I said, I have no idea. She took a blood test and it came back positive, carrying one celiac gene. Well, it just blew everything open. 
She said, no wonder you burst your, your appendix at age 11 because you were eating gluten. And no wonder you were 150 kilos because it's inflammatory. And I'm like, what? So that has been a godsend, finding out I'm celiac. I did a two-day test to see why I couldn't understand anything at school and found out I was dyslexic. And she said, you are really high on the scale of intelligence. I went, oh, that's not right. Been told I've been stupid all my life. Again, through recovery, found out I was dyslexic, high intelligence, just no one knew how to teach me. So, um, yeah, it's been amazing. So one revelation after another in my life has come through my recovery. That sounds good. Okay, well, what if we take another short break there? If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. Well and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. This is Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Ingrid and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Ingrid, you got into AA and you started getting an understanding of, of the problem, you know, so one, one of the problems that you're addressing so did AA enable you to start addressing the other issues you had in your life as well? Yes, it definitely did because it, it, it sort of unveiled a lot of the other issues and it showed me my people-pleasing and it showed me, you know, my enabling with my daughter for sure and my mother and I had her as a higher power. I always put her before anything because I was constantly trying to please her. So it actually brought it all back to me without being selfish. I had to start, I had to start looking, you know, at myself and my behaviours instead of, you know, blaming my mother or blaming my daughter, saying that she was, you know, naughty or doing this or doing that. Just bring it back to me. And that's what AA showed me. Just, you know, bring it back to yourself. So did you miss drinking? It was hard when I first started. There was times when I thought, oh, you know, I could have a drink. But no, I would say looking back, because I was accessing my anger as well, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I was just like this child trying to work myself out. And, you know, I was a bit like acting like the first year, I would say like a bit of a dry drunk, really, because I, you know, rage and which was not like me. But coming off alcohol, that's what it, you know, I was starting to actually fall into my body and find out who I was. So, yeah, first year would have been hard, but really not now. Not now. I don't, I don't go out to restaurants and watch people drink 
like I used to in that first year. Oh, they're having another one. Oh, they're having another one. No, I don't see. I don't watch any of that now. I don't miss it. I don't. And what I do now with alcohol is I label it as a drug. I see it as a drug, no different to any other drug out there. It's a drug and it, it can, and it's a drug of dependency if you let it. So no. So today I don't miss it. And I'm hoping each day I try and live in that day. And um, I hope each day will be like that. Mm. So you, you mentioned an interesting thing before. You said that people pleasing is like treating is like treating people as a higher power. So thinking about your your mum and trying to please her, what what sort of things did you do to try and make yourself more acceptable to her? Oh, constantly, um, you know, running around for her, um, whatever she wanted, doing things, you know, just turning myself inside out, doing everything, you know. I mean, I don't know. I can't even remember, Bill, but it's like over the years, constantly running after her, um, trying to get her approval. You know, I think instinctively I knew that I never had it because mum grew up in a toxic family herself. It was interesting because we had a conversation a little while ago, it was a few months ago about my daughter who passed. She was very close to my mum. And um, my mum actually said that she never had that feeling for her three children like she did for my daughter. And in that moment, I felt like she released me. She actually released me because I think intuitively I knew that I didn't matter to my mum and I was constantly trying to do, do, do to matter. But in that moment, she told me she didn't feel anything for her kids. It was like a release and I don't know how to explain it, but that's how I felt. So today mum's a big age and I look after her, but... It's different. It is different. And I attribute that to my to my recovery and my daily AA meetings. Mm-hmm. Does she still drink? No, she's a dry drunk, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see it in the behaviours. And so I'm more, I'm more attuned. I can actually pick up on what's going on and I know. I can see. So it's made me more aware certainly more aware of of my surroundings and more aware of what's been going on. That's for sure. Yeah. So the other thing you mentioned was that with your daughter, you were trying to sort of save her. So what was that like for you, you know, trying to get over your own demons, if you like, to have someone you couldn't really, you know, you were doing it for yourself, but you couldn't do it for her. So what was that like for you? That was really hard. That was a hard time in my life. I just got down on my hands and knees and prayed to my higher power, please help her. And I had to hand it over because I felt like I was going insane because, you know, this people pleasing was still in me. There were times when I wanted to just, you know, turn myself inside out, have her move in with me. And then, you know, the whole thing would have gone to a big mess. I mean, she just, you know, she used to steal and it was awful. So, I had to up my meetings, that's for sure. I did have to up my meetings. I started at Al-Anon. I had to learn to, to detach with love, really, because she, she was an adult. You know, she, um, she had her higher power. I'm not saying it was easy. It was really hard, and it was. But I had the program, and I had, the, I had my AA people as well. I got through. I mean, I don't know how. I, look, when she died, it was just horrendous. I never slept and I was, I was a mess. And, of course, the doctors, you know, want to put you on Valium and antidepressants. And, you know, she died from overdose of Valium. And I just said to him, you're kidding me, aren't you? He said, well, you've got to sleep. I've got to get you to sleep. I said, I cannot go on Valium. I said to you, you don't understand. I cannot go on. The, I said, I won't come back from there. I won't oh you know you've got to you've got to sleep I've got to get you on something and I just thought no and I went to a counsellor who actually practiced natural natural grief process and she taught me how to when things were when I was hysterical and with crying and couldn't control anything she used to say she said to me fill up a sink with water 
and put your face in that water as if you're diving and it just resets the parasympathetic nervous system, which is what I did. So that's how I helped myself with natural things. And I just knew that I'd be, I'd be on another addiction if I started on Valium. I just knew. So for me, that worked. You know, I'm not saying that's for everyone, but, you know, and I just upped my program. I was a mess when I would go in there into the rooms. But, and, you know, if I couldn't physically go into the rooms, the AA people would ring me. I had friends in there ringing me daily which I'll never forget so it was you know I have my brothers and sisters in that room and um, I was very lucky very lucky that I had them that's for sure Mm. yeah they're closer than family aren't they they absolutely are Mm. yeah they absolutely are so I was very lucky so what was the difference between you said you're in AA but what was the difference between AA and Al-Anon and and how did that help with your daughter well, Elanon taught me, you know, what went on as a child. It showed me what went on, showed me things in my behaviour and, and how I was enabling. It showed me how I was enabling her and how things progressed. The more I enabled, the more it progressed into a downward spiral with her. I, I started Elanon prior to her death and then I left. But I continued on with AA and then I went back to Al-Anon after she died. So I didn't have Al-Anon when she, you know, while for very long while she was alive. But what I did learn was that, you know, I was an enabler. And so the difference was, was learning the family of origin, certainly, and learning how this is passed down generation to generation and how I had to look after myself, otherwise I was going to go down with her. That's certainly what it taught me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it is generational. And, and some people think it's generational just because you, you catch the gene or whatever, but it's, it's a taught behaviour. It certainly is. certainly is. And what I learned was in that clinic was that you have an opportunity with a child from the time they're born to seven. And in those seven years, whatever goes on will predict their future and their future, gener- their, their relationships and what happens. So, I mean, you know, chaos at home, drinking, you know, getting blamed for not pulling false teeth out of the toilet, you know, um, little kid cleaning up vomit, you know, night terrors, crying at night because I was on my own because I was on my own, really. Everyone was drunk. So, you know, I've got to be gentle today. I like to criticise myself. I'm my worst critic. You know, I get a lot of st- I can get a lot of stinking thinking and think, what did you do? And you lost your daughter, and who do you think you are? And why did you have kids? And I can get into all of that. But you know, today I I try and be gentle. I try and be gentle with myself and just say you did your best. And you know, stay in the day. Try not to project too far into the future. And um, I do that because of the because of the program, because of Alanon. I've just done my steps with Alanon with a sponsor, and I've done my steps in the AA four times so yeah I need to be in my program because you know it's dangerous dangerous place for me to be in my head you know it'll kill me it will kill me so yeah so have you effectively overcome all the things that were compulsions before so you've solved solved the food problem have you solved the loving problem certainly certainly I'm on my own no love addiction going on there but certainly Bill you know I'm told that it's a recovery it's just a recovery like it can rear its ugly head at any given moment and I know that so for me I have to read the big book I have to you know read my recovery stories I read a little bit every day whatever I can do I have to meditate and I have to calm my nervous system I have to really do that it's not a matter of being totally recovered. And I know that it can always be there that it's doing push-ups. And, but today, you know, I don't have love addiction and I don't chase unavailable men and I'm not drinking. I'm 10 years sober in June. I'm very peaceful, you know. I'm, I ha- of course, I have my upsetting days and, of course, I get in my head about my daughter. That's the worst pain. 
you know, and I can be angry at my husband for leaving me this dead. But again, you know, I look at his little picture and I know what he went through with his mother. And again, he did the best he could with what he had. So, you know, forgiveness is important in my life. And I certainly can't, you know, carry that because it's toxic to me and it'll destroy me. So, mm -hmm. so certainly I've got a much more calmer, it's my state of mind that's really important. Yeah. So the other thing, I, I, and I guess all 12-step fellowships talk about, is the importance of service and giving back. So how's that been part of your life? Yes, I've sponsored people in AA. Certainly that keeps you on your toes. You know, that can be challenging in itself. And I've um, chaired meetings in AA and Al-Anon, which is great. I love doing that too. I think getting involved, I think, you know, you, you form relationships, you know, and I have a tendency to be um, isolating and, you know, be on my own. So for me, it's been fabulous. It pulls me out of the dark. You know, I like to hide out always. And that's a part of my um, personality from childhood. So, yes, yeah, so I like to put myself out there. I like to sit up there and chair, even though I break out in this terrible sweat you know, I had this thing as a kid, I remember in grade four, the nun said to me, bring up your exercise book. So I bought it up. We used to get gold stars or silver stars. I thought I was going to get a star for my homework. She said, turn the page. And she points to the grade and she said, now laugh at her. Because, you know, here I am, poor little dyslexic kid, one capital, one small, laugh at her. So for me to get up there and to chair is a big deal. I get this, I go back to grade four where I was ridiculed. So I have to really breathe through that and just relax. And, you know, it takes a lot, but I push through it and it really is rewarding for me. Yes. Okay. If anyone would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Australia on 1300 222 or go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of your local AA meeting. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Ingrid for sharing her recovery experience with us and talking about how AA has helped her. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about food obsessions and feature some members of FoodX and Recovery Anonymous. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Now here's something different. The Heatherdale Bowls Club in Mitcham is offering tuition with equipment supplied for singles, couples and all family members to learn the game. You can play whether you are 9 or 90. It's fun and it's free. They are located in Heatherdale Road, Mitcham, just up from the Manhattan Hotel in a picturesque parkland area. Their website is hrbc.org.au or just ring Elise on 0409 258 645. That's 0409 258 645. A 3CR supporter.